0: Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Thank you so much. Sons and daughters of the living God, happy Sabbath. Today we continue our series titled Remedial. We're going back to school This is our summer class to make up anything we missed. And, church, I'll be honest today, this sermon, we really are going to school, okay? There's quotes. We're talking about the Enlightenment, it's a thing. And we're talking about the scriptures. But to get into it, a story. He was born in South Carolina as a slave. He worked on the plantation for 12 years before he was sent to the docks to make money for his owner. When he got to the docks, though, it was clear he was a genius. He quickly mastered every aspect of seafaring and boat building and navigation. He worked there for years until the Civil War broke out. And he was conscripted to fight on a southern battleship against his own interests. The battleship was known as the Planter. And the war raged on. Until one night, as he was serving on this ship, he convinced the captain and the officers that they needed a night off? He said, listen, you all need a night off, okay? If you just take the night on shore, spend some time with your families, it'll be good for you, and if you don't mind, we'll invite our families on this boat. He served there with seven other men. And somehow he convinced them, and the captain said, yeah, okay, sure, what could go wrong? (laughs) They go... With the other men there, he says, listen, go get your families right now. They go and get their families, and somebody retrieved his family as well. He had a wife that he loved madly and some children. As she stepped on board, he told her of his plan. Honey, tonight, we're stealing a battleship. Her response, recorded brilliant, she says this, it's a risk, Yes, it is. (laughs) But the freedom for myself and you and our little ones. We must be free. So wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you die, I will die. That's romance. That's brave. So they step on board. And there with the other men, he commands them, they slip this giant battleship off its moorings and they start navigating out of the harbour. There are four checkpoints that they need to pass, but the first four are not a problem. He has memorised the entire southern code book, communicates effortlessly with the ship's communication systems. The fifth one, though, is the problem. The fifth one is Fort Sumter, arrayed with cannons. As they're coming to the fifth checkpoint, The other men on the boat, they say, listen, sail broad of it, don't go too close to it. And he says, if we do that, that will arouse their suspicion even more. He'd stolen the captain's outfit, good work. The captain also had a particular straw hat that he would wear. He'd taken that as well. He copied the captain's mannerisms. And there at 3 a.m. in the morning, Standing in the shadows of the helm of this ship, white gloves on, he pulled this ship up beside Fort Sumter and communicated with the officers there permission to leave. They went in. That never happens. He recalls standing there, thinking the game was surely up. But he stood there, back straight, waiting for what he thought would be next, just a volley of cannon fire. His relief was incredible when the officers walked out and waved him on. He stole a battleship. They sailed straight out of the harbour. As soon as they were out of the range of the guns of Fort Sumter, he pulled down the southern flags, raised the white bedsheets, and sailed to the Union blockade. There, as the sun was rising, he greeted the Union blockade with these words, standing at the helm of his ship, Good morning, sirs. I bring you guns and ammunition from the Old South. That's a good entrance, isn't it? For that, he was awarded his freedom. With his freedom, he chose to fight for the North. He saw 17 major naval conflicts on the 18th, fighting on this very ship that they had stolen and repurposed. Under a captain, they came under intense fire. The captain left the helm of the ship and went to hide in the coal room. (laughs) He went down to the captain and said, we need to make our way out of here. The captain said, it won't be a problem. He said, it won't be a problem for you. You'll become a prisoner of war. I will be dead. So he went and assumed command of this ship and fought its way to safety. For his bravery, Abraham Lincoln promoted him to the rank of captain, and he continued to serve the army until the war finished. The story gets better, though. You see, not only did he steal a battleship, he started an incredible business empire there in South Carolina. With his business empire flourishing, he then decided to turn his time and attention to politics. He founded the Republican Party, In there, South Carolina founded it, started it, elected to Congress and the House of Representatives five times, wrote the legislation for the first free and public school system in all of the US. But it gets better. His master's house came up for sale. The house that he had grown up in, it came up for sale, so he purchased it. And there he lived out his days as a free man in the very house that he had been raised in. (laughs) I mean, it's satisfying, isn't it? It feels good. It feels like, as we say, quoting Martin Luther King, the arc of the moral universe bends back towards justice. We find that story so satisfying. During that time, though, There was also a war that was raging in the churches. In the churches, there was a debate going on, ink was being spilt, and the question was this, do these scriptures stand for or against slavery? As a Christian, should I or should I not keep slaves? And the debate, it sounds absurd to us these days, doesn't it? because we all clearly understand how wrong slavery is. We also still see where far too often around this world right now people are subject to slavery. But in those days, this debate was raging. Some were saying, of course, of course we're allowed to keep slaves. Have you seen the amount of times in that book where it is told how we are to keep slaves? But then others were saying, no, no. No, it's against the spirit of this book. The spirit? That's the best you've got? Give me a, thus says the Lord, I can't keep slaves. And oh, well, Jesus kind of did say that. I have come to set the captives free. That's the best you've got? It's against the spirit of it. Would Jesus keep slaves? And so the debate raged on with consequence as well. See, here's the thing, church, let me tell you, as a pastor, one of the most important things that you can consider in your spiritual life is this, how do I read the scriptures? This document, it has authority. And how you approach it and how you understand it is one of the most fundamental issues you will face in your Christian life. Because from that, everything is driven. Your decisions, your morals, what you believe is wrong and right, your spiritual practices, your community, your faith, your country, everything comes from how you read the scripture. Even the longevity of your faith. As a minister, I have the joy of doing weddings. And as I do weddings, there is, there is one question that I ask as I prepare with the couple. I asked them where their faith is at. More simply, I asked them how much Jesus they want in this wedding. One answer from a good friend of mine stood out to me. I said, listen, how much, how much Jesus do you want in this wedding? No judgment. I, I do weddings for people of faith and no faith. I, weddings are beautiful. How much do you want? His, his answer, though, showed an incredible, an incredible perspective. He said, listen, Chris... I think I've outgrown my faith. I, 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 I used to believe. I had answers that worked for me when I was like 5 and 7 and 12. But I feel like my faith doesn't fit me anymore. It's not meaningful to me anymore. I went and I got an education, and it was contrary to everything I thought the Scriptures were teaching me. And then in one last ditch effort to save my faith, I read the scriptures. And Chris, do you know what's in there? The stuff that is in there. I just feel like I've outgrown the scriptures. And my heart broke for him because he clearly did miss his faith. And I wished for him in that moment that he had found a way that he could read the scriptures that would allow him to keep faith in such a way that he could wear faith like an old coat that keeps you warm when this life is cold. Everything in your life is determined by how you read the Scriptures. So today, we're going to spend some more time in that debate in the 1800s. Because in that debate, there is something fascinating that can be taught to us about how the Scriptures can be read. We are going to be honest with the scriptures. There are some troublesome texts on slavery. There truly are. This will probably be the first time these texts have been quoted in a sermon. Firstly, in Leviticus. Leviticus, we find this, as for your male and female slaves, whom you may have. You may buy them from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy them from those For among the strangers who journey with you, and their clans, and the ones who have been born into your land, they may be your property. You may keep them as an inheritance and pass them down through your family line forever. It's not a great text. Of your brothers and the people of Israel, no, but the others forever. Forever. The next text is even harder to read, and this one comes from Exodus. Anyone who beats their male or female servant with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. That's tough to read, church. You can beat your slaves as long as you don't beat them so severely that they die within two days. As we read our scriptures, though, as we move forward through the scriptures, there seems to be a change in tone. Because by the time we come to the words of the Christ, as were so well read, we find there in the book of Luke... Christ saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then as we read further, we come to that incredible text, Galatians three twenty-eight. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, for you are all one, in Jesus Christ. What do we do with the scripture that contains such a spectrum? When it comes to the question of how you should read your scriptures, the answer is always found in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, there is a fascinating interaction that occurs. Jesus is there teaching and healing. And the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, is it lawful for us to divorce our wives for any and every reason? Any and every reason? Let me set the context clearly as we begin this. In those days, this was not an issue of two equal, independent people going different ways. When a woman was sent away, she was sent to be destitute. Also in those days, and it's it's quite disturbing to read, but in those days, what also was happening is that you could have a family and then you could go away on a business trip and in that new town, you could marry someone on Monday and then find a reason to divorce them on Wednesday, blessed by the priest, and then go home with no troubles. In this scripture, Jesus is speaking to Pharisees. He's, He's speaking to men. And they say, listen, is it lawful for us to divorce our wives for any and every reason? And Jesus says, haven't you read? In the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And therefore, what was two will now become one. They are no longer two, but one. Let what God has joined, no one separate. And then the disciples ask an excellent question. The Pharisees, I apologize. The Pharisees ask an excellent question. Why then did Moses command that a man can give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, why does that happen? Why in the Old Testament is that there present? And Jesus' answer is phenomenal. He says, Because your hearts were hard. Because your hearts were hard. That was the best we could do with you at the time. We wanted to do better, but because of where you had just come from, you had just come out of Egypt, you didn't have the psychological or the spiritual, or the emotional, or the societal resources. That was the best we could do. But now we're going to do better. Because what was right for hard hearts at that time is not right for all hearts at all times. So now let me tell you this. Pharisees, the only reason why you can send your wife away is if she is unfaithful. If for any reason you send her away, you are committing a sin, you take care of your wife and children. What's fascinating in this is the disciples' response to it. It's almost comical. They get exaggerated and dramatic. They say, Jesus, if this is the case, then we shouldn't be married. We shouldn't ever get married. What they're saying is, Jesus, if that's the standard, that standard's too high. I don't think I can keep that, Jesus. Can we negotiate on the standard? And what Jesus does, it's it's brilliant. He trolls them. He just leans into it and he says, well, actually, not being married is an option. If that's what you want, we can do that. There are some people who are born as eunuchs. There are some people who are made that way. And there are some who choose that for the sake of the kingdom. Absolutely an option. Which one do you want? (laughs) Jesus sets up a reading of the scripture, which I think is fascinating. And I think it's best explained by a metaphor of a football game. And I need to thank Randy Roberts. He gave me this metaphor, and it's a very good one. And when I speak of football, I mean, rugby. (laughs) Oh, church, I apologize. As you look at that screen, you could conclude that Americans aren't that tough. (laughs) You could also conclude that Australians aren't that smart as well. But what Jesus does is he sets up this reading of the Scriptures. That seems to follow the plays of a football field. To so the next slide there. We were created. The end goal is love for God with all of your heart and soul and mind and your neighbor as yourself. But then we fell. We fell all the way back to the five-yard line. And when you read the beginnings of Scripture, it's brutal, it's barbaric. And then prophet after prophet comes and tries to move the ball down the field. Moves the ball down the field exactly like what doesn't happen when the Dallas Cowboys play. (laughs) While the boss is away. (laughs) There is a progression through scripture. Moving us down to a place where we are coming closer to soft hearts and love for one another. So keeping that in mind... Returning to the debate that was at hand, I have a really simple question for you, church. I want to ask you who read the Scriptures better. The first person I give to you is Bishop Elliot from Alabama. I don't want to read this quote, but we need to be honest with history. This is him preaching, entering into the debate for nearly a hundred years the English and American churches have been striving to civilize and christianize western Africa. And with what result? I hate this. A few natives have been made Christians and some nations have been partially civilized but what a small number in comparison with the thousands i even say millions who have learned the way to heaven and who have been made to know their savior through the means of african slavery great sermon. He goes on. At this moment, there are from three to four million of Africans educating for earth and for heaven in the so vilified southern states. Yes. Learning the very best lessons. I'll let you read that. I don't want to say it. Lessons of self-control. And above all, where their weaknesses lie, these considerations satisfy me that their best condition is this, and I can be assured that this is the best relation they can presently be made to occupy. A shocking reading of the Scripture. A disgusting reading of the Scripture, but being preached there in Alabama. One other reading of the Scripture, and I'm going to ask the question, who who read it better? This comes from Adolphe Adam, a French poet and composer. We're doing Christmas in July. Some of you might recognize the lyrics to this song. It's O Holy Night. This was his reading of the scripture. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, his gospel. It's peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And his name. All oppression shall cease. Church, how much oppression? All. What is the opposite of oppression? Freedom. Sweet hymns of joyful, grateful choruses we raise. Let all within us praise his holy name fall on your knees. Christ is the Lord. Who read the scripture better Who got closer to the heart and the message and the teaching of this scripture? If you need any more evidence, let's keep going. This is fun. Let me show you what happened when a person who had been subject to the horrors of slavery read the scripture. This is Frederick Douglass. Such an incredible haircut. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference so wide that to receive the one as good and pure and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad and corrupt and wicked ouch to be the friend of one is of the necessity to be the enemy of the other i love the pure peaceable and impartial christianity of christ i therefore hate the corrupt slave holding woman whipping cradle plundering partial and hypocritical christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity." The owners of slaves, they, they saw their error when they began giving oppressed people the scriptures. So they created this abomination of a document. If you go to the museum, the Washington Museum of the Bible, you will find this. It is a holy Bible edited for the purpose of making good slaves. They realized that if you give oppressed people the, the Bible, they don't remain oppressed very long, and so they had to cut this document up. The book of Exodus, that's gone. You can't keep that in there. <laughs> the book of Luke, set free the oppressed, Gone. The New Testament, cut to pieces. Galatians 3.28, gone, gone, gone. In that document was just a few boring texts like don't steal and don't lie. Everything that related to the truth and the oppression and the set free and the liberty just, just cut out. This document is powerful, church. It truly is. Our early Adventist forefathers and foremothers It was fascinating. They respected the Scriptures. They understood the Scriptures. They found the Sabbath in the Scriptures. But they had absolutely no problems being strong abolitionists. Ellen White called slavery the sin of the darkest dye that stains this country. They had no trouble saying, listen, we need to do better. It's interesting, as you listen to them, they essentially say this, We, as Adventists, we were never concerned that we had outgrown the Scriptures. Our concern was only ever this, that we had not yet fully grown into the Scriptures. The Scriptures are still ahead of us. We still have work to do. It's a big claim, but I think I can back it up. Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. It took the early church a hundred years to get that right. Throughout the Old Testament, prophecy after prophecy, saying, listen, people are going to flock to Jerusalem. And when Jesus came and preached this message of love, saying, your sins are forgiven, God is gracious, people flooded to Jerusalem. And yet standing there at the door were people saying, listen, I'm not sure if you can come in, See, there's this procedure you need to have done on the eighth day after your birth as a male to allow you to enter this place. And yet the early church, Paul the Apostles, prophetic, miraculous, said, listen, that's not the point. And here we sit 2,000 years later as Gentiles in the purpose of Christ. It took the early church 100 years to get that right. That second line there. There is neither slave nor free it took us at least another 1,700 years to get that right, church. And amongst others, William Wilberforce, there in England, working with genius and creativity, compelled by the scriptures, working to outlaw slavery in the nation. And the fight still goes on. And then that last line, male or female, Church, let me just ask it like this. Which woman in recent history conducted herself with a shocking amount of authority, establishing hospitals and schools and clinics, food companies, educational institutions around the world? Which woman acted with authority before the suffragette movement, and led an entire religious group. Which woman wrote more in religious history than any other woman in any religion considered? Ellen White. There comes this moment where God says, listen, we're going forward. Prophetic, miraculous. We are moving forward now. We are seeing what a shocking waste we have made of of women's spiritual gifts throughout the century. But the Scriptures are still ahead of us. Church, the teaching today is simple. We are not ahead of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are still ahead of us. To finish two quick illustrations. First of all, I'm a dual citizen. I love my place here in this country, and I also still love my country Australia as well. It creates weird internal conflicts where I celebrate the 4th of July and still recognise the coronation, and so, like, I'm working on that. (laughs) It's bizarre, but I love both. Here, though, in America, I do take my time to make sure my kids are connected to their Australian heritage. So every evening, we sit down and we make sure they watch an episode of Bluey. I hope you are watching Bluey. It is a brilliant show for those of you with kids. But also... I spend time on Australian YouTube channels. And one of them, it's very simple. The entire premise is this. It's called the uh, Tassie Prospecting Boys. It's not a complicated show. What happens, there are these boys, and they go prospecting for gold in Tasmania. It's it's very simple. What they do is every episode, they go to a location, and they say, listen, the mining companies came through here, and they say they got all the gold, but let's go check. And then they go check, and there's more gold there. It happens every week, and it's fantastic. (laughs) But I love that as a metaphor. There is still gold yet in these scriptures. These scriptures are still guiding us forward. This is a powerful document. If you read it well and read it often, we will be okay. Second piece of evidence. There was a time in history where these documents were kept from public consumption. A small minority of people said, listen, don't read them. You won't understand them. You need to be a professional to understand this. It shouldn't even be in your own language. Colloquially, we refer to those periods as the Dark Ages. After the Dark Ages came what we know as the Enlightenment. Can you tell me what the event was? that transitioned us from the Dark Ages to the Enlightenment? It was the Scripture. Brave people published this document in the language that people could understand, and society flourished. It exploded with learning and science and math and art. We have Galileo there, writing commentaries on the Scripture whilst also exploring the truths of the universe. We have educational institutions, we have hospitals, we have democracy, we have society, we have law, we have order. Our entire society is based on the fact that people read this scripture. So again, the teaching is simple, church. We have not outgrown the scripture. My concern is we are still not yet grown into it. So read your scripture well and read it often.